Amen. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. My name is Pastor uh, Drew Robinson. I've been here for a grand total of about four or five weeks, and I just wanted to, uh, to take just a second to say thank you uh, for myself, for my wife, uh, for my kids, Miles and Nora. Man, it's just been such an encouragement. You never know uh, when you uh, uproot your life and you move to a, a new group of people that you hope and you pray uh, that, uh, man, the Lord is leading you and you're hearing from him correctly. But, man, it's just been such an encouragement over the last month. Uh, as we've gotten to know people here, you, you guys have been so gracious to us and uh, so welcoming, and we're, we're just so thankful. And so I just wanted to take just a second uh, before we get started just to say uh, thank you. Uh, the second thing I wanted to, to take just a, a second to say is uh, also when you uproot your family and you meet a group of 30 to 40 teenagers at one time, uh, you never know what that's going to look like either. Uh, and I think, man, uh, I, I could not express in words to you how special um, man, the group of young people that we have here at Fellowship Olathe is. Uh, I think that uh, in general, when people talk about the next generation, uh, specifically middle school and high school students, uh, some Gen Z stuff, uh, a lot of the words that you'll, you'll see associated are negative. Uh, that's, uh, woe is this generation? Why are they doing things this way or that way? Uh, man, and I think that that's the tendency, but I- I'm telling you that in every generation, uh, God calls out some that are his, uh, that love him and that know him and that want to serve him and, and leads them. And it's been so special for me to, to continue because I've been in student ministry to see that happen generation uh, after generation. Man, we have some amazing young people uh, who love the Lord, who uh, have other students that they're looking to serve and to care for that are struggling. They want to encourage them and disciple them. And it's, it's such a special place. And so I'm so thankful for the opportunity to, uh, to lead going forward. And thank you uh, for entrusting my family uh, with that. Now, as you get to know me a little bit, uh, there's a few things that uh, you'll get to know me, uh, know me for. But uh, one, I'll let you know, I am an only child. All right. So I don't know what that does to your impression of me uh, at this moment in time. Uh, fortunately, I had awesome parents and, and cousins that beat me up and kept me humble. And so uh, that, was, uh, that was an awesome experience. Uh, but as an only child, I feel like when I meet other only children and older, the oldest child, uh, as I meet people that are only children, the oldest child, there's usually one characteristic that they share that I think is kind of funny. Uh, that because they're the oldest child or the only child, that they aren't experiencing culture from the lens of like an older sibling, that often they're experiencing culture from what their, their parents like. Uh, for, for example, uh, my wife tells the story that when she enters middle school, uh, she thought that the only music artists, not Christian or secular, the only music artists were Steve Green and Amy Grant. Like that was it. So you can imagine you go to middle school one day and someone's listening to something and she's like, that's not Steve Green or Amy Grant. Like, what's, what's going on, right? Uh, I know for myself, uh, I remember a distinct moment in high school where somebody asked me, Drew, what is your favorite TV show? Uh, and, and I grew up in a generation where when I was watching with my parents, my favorite t- TV show was MacGyver. All right, is anybody, anybody with me on that? MacGyver was my show. I loved MacGyver. And what I loved about MacGyver is that over the time, you would realize that every episode was basically the same, right? That there were certain characteristics uh, that would happen in the show that you knew were coming. You didn't know how it was going to apply to this specific situation, but you knew it was coming. One, they were going to capture him and for some reason let him live and put him by himself. I don't know why that was the strategy of the bad guys in the show, but they'd always for far too long let him be by himself and capture him. Uh, Number two, 
that he was going to look around and in some crazy way figure out how to use some kind of household item in order to get his way out. And the best episodes were the ones where something exploded. Like those are the ones where I really, really love. Something exploded. That was a win. And then lastly, you would see him kind of gather his friends and, and help deliver them who were in the situation with him. That every episode you start to see, oh, there's that again, there's that again, there's that again. Today, as we look in the book of Exodus, we continue our, our study that we see God as deliverer, that as he enacts his plans to deliver his people that we pick up on, not just in the book of Exodus, but for the continuation of scripture and in our lives today, that there's certain characteristics that we recognize, oh, there's God delivering again in that way, and there's God delivering again uh, in that way, and we, we start to recognize our deliverer. So uh, the fact that God uses human history to communicate who he is to his people, that as his people live through the, the course of, of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and onward all the way through Acts and now today, that we see as his people live life that he interacts with them and communicates character and nature of himself. And his hope is that when they find themselves in desperation, that they would know that he's delivered them over and over and over again, that they could trust him as their heavenly father. And so today, as we enter into the, the book of Exodus in chapter two, we're actually gonna start in the verse before. What I want you to see is I want you to see four characteristics of God's deliverance plans. If you're taking notes, that's where we're going. We're going to see four characteristics of God's deliverance plan. We're gonna see them pop up today and then you'll see them in continuation throughout the book of Exodus and you'll be reminded uh, in the future. Now often we find ourselves, if you've been with us uh, for the last several weeks, we find that the, the people of God are, are in a, a dark situation. Uh, often God uses a, a dark backdrop to communicate who he is. For instance, uh, here on stage, if you come to a church, maybe any church, you'll recognize that the, the backdrop uh, of a church is normally slightly darker uh, than the rest of the room, that there's a, uh, an added darkness uh, to the, the back. And, and then you see uh, kind of if there's accessories that they're a, a dark stain. Why is that? Why is it? So that the light shows up a little bit brighter. And so as we enter into the scriptures, we see that often God uses these dark backdrops of human history and circumstances and situations. Why? To illuminate who he is and his character just a little bit brighter. And so we find ourselves, if you've been with us, uh, that as God's chosen people, that they have entered into bondage. Uh, really, this is uh, slaves to the nation of Egypt. This is kind of a, a veer from what you would expect. So if, if you've been reading Genesis and then you enter into Exodus, you see that in Genesis, God promises to fix the curse of sin through the seed of a woman. And then he promises to bless the family of Abraham and his descendants. And, and, and then you get to Exodus and it's like this hard veer out of left field. And they become slaves in Egypt and there's this voice inside of you that goes, why, why is this the plan? Why would it go this direction? In fact, it's not just a one-time thing for the people of God. You could randomly open your Bible up almost to any page of narrative in the scriptures. And within a few pages, you're probably going to read about a nation or a group of people who are opposed to the people of God or the things of God. Opposition starts to God with Satan, and then uh, it makes its way to the garden and to human beings, and, and then it passes from Adam to Cain and entire nations who try to enforce their own will in opposition to God's. 
to God. Their own morals, idols, ideas, policies, and desires counter to that of God's design. We will see that God's people constantly are displayed with this backdrop of opposition, starting with the Egyptians here in Exodus, but eventually moving to the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Babylonians, and eventually Rome, to name a few. Throughout the Old Testament, God specifically uses these nations to give us a picture of what sin is. It's a word picture in reality. As the nations oppose God, the people of God are to trust him for deliverance as they are surrounded by enemies who hate them and their God. Just as the Hebrew people as the people of God become defined by their need and dependence for God to deliver them from slavery and opposition, so the church now as the people of God is comprised of people who are defined also by their deliverance from a slave master and sin itself. By Jesus Christ on the cross and a continual dependence and willingness on his willingness to sustain us and the determination to follow him as we are surrounded in every direction by sin's influence and opposition in our world. As we observe this in the scriptures, between God's will working itself out in human history among opposition, we're, we're, we're tempted to, to read this as if we would watch a movie, all right? And so is anybody like a Marvel movie fan in the audience? Okay, all right. Uh, maybe, maybe you're not a Marvel movie fan. Maybe you're like a Western person. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter because they all have kind of the same storyline as well, right? And so there's a group of bad guys, right, that present a problem. And, and, and these bad guys have this, this plan that they're going to outwork, all right? And over here we have the good guys or the good person, right, that has a a plan that they're also outworking. As you watch the movie, the hope is, as you watch, that the bad guy's plan will not be as good as the good guy's plan, right? That the good guy will be stronger and wiser and more creative, and that ultimately, by the end, the good will prevail. This is the premise of almost every movie that we watch. And this is the temptation as we read through the Bible to start to view God and evil as these oppositions in battle trading blows. But this is not how we should read and think of God's unfolding deliverance plan at all. There's a distinct difference. We start to read about a God who isn't not just more powerful, although he is, who doesn't just have a better plan than the opposition, who isn't just wiser, but a God who is so big that even the acts and motives and desires of his enemy are not outside of his plans. That nothing his opposition does is unplanned or unknown or a surprise to him. That even though they act selfishly and in opposition, they are still fulfilling his plans and wishes, whether they mean to or not. That he doesn't have to adjust or go back to the drawing board or reevaluate, but even what seems like a blow is exactly as he intended it. What good news for those who are his, that God is sovereign even over the enemy. So as we dig into this plan, the beginning, the origin of this development of Moses, I want you to see four characteristics that are repetitive throughout scripture, four characteristics of God's deliverance plan. We're gonna start in chapter one. Uh, We're gonna read this in three parts. Uh, And so we're gonna start in chapter one. We see that God is working his plan despite opposition. So chapter one, verse 21, 22. The Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. 
And when she saw that he was a fine child, which I feel like is biased because Moses is writing this, like that feels, that feels a little, you know, a little biased, but that's okay. When she saw he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And as his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So the first characteristic that I want you to see of this, this God's deliverance plan is that God is working his plan despite opposition. That not only the acts of his people are according to his plan, but even the acts of the Egyptians, the opposition are done for his purposes. This theme is, is not new, but we saw it introduced just a couple of pages before in Genesis by Joseph in chapter 50, verse 20. Just a couple of pages before, Joseph says this, what you intended for evil, God purposes for good. That even as a, a, a people act independently and according to their own agency for what they believe to be their own purposes, that God weaves it into his divine plan and they actually serve his purposes. That, that God weaves these into his plans. Here in Exodus, we see an example, right? We just, we just read these verses. And we're gonna continue to see examples throughout the book of Exodus. Pharaoh enacts this policy in which every male Hebrew born is to be placed into the river. He thinks, his motivation, he thinks he is eliminating a threat motivated by power and greed. He enacts this policy that he thinks will subdue God's children. But he's actually enacting the beginning of God's deliverance plan, unbeknownst to him. Pharaoh's daughter, acting based on her own emotions and desires and beliefs, begins unknowingly God's deliverance plan for his people. Some people believe that she may have been unable to have children. And so the desperation is there in her life, this desperate need or want for a child. Others theorize that because she was raised believing the Nile was a God itself, that she would have believed as this, this child floated down that it was a gift from a higher power. As she goes to the river to bathe, for whatever reason in her mind, God is the one weaving her intentions into his divine plan to raise up a deliverer for his people. Her willingness to defy the heart of her father's order was a lifetime in the making in preparation for that moment to pick up that baby. The first weapon used against Egypt is not a spear or even an army, but a baby's cry and a woman's maternal instinct. He uses her empathy for a baby's cry to draw out Moses from the water. Not only that, but because she can't nurse the baby boy herself, she gives Moses back to his own mother to care for him, and she pays him. Kelsey's like, somebody pay me to take care of my own children. Let's go, right? 
But Pharaoh's daughter has no idea that she is actually allowing the future leader of God's people out of Egypt to be raised behind enemy lines. This is good news for us today, that God works even in the opposition. That if even the nations that opposed God himself were just instruments in his plan, that as we face evil policies, cultural idols, unfair slander, cruel circumstances, ungodly desires, dark pasts, that nothing is able to thwart the deliverance plans of God, that not even the gates of hell themselves cannot defeat the church, that though we face trials and sorrows of many kinds, that we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. That like Moses, according to God's ultimate deliverance plan, Jesus himself survived the edict of Herod's policy to kill all male babies under two. And then one day, uh, as all looked on Jesus, he, he stood trial and was mocked and beaten and ultimately took his last breath on a cross. It appears at the moment that Satan's opposition to God had finally achieved victory. Yet in God's sovereignty, he uses what was intended as evil once again, for good. That his son would pay the price of sin on our behalf and all that would place their faith in him would deliver the death blow to sin and death for the rest of eternity. And so we see as God delivers, one of the characteristics of his plan is that God even uses the opposition to his plan. The second point that we see, this characteristic of God's deliverance plan is that God uses acts of faith to accomplish his Plan. Here in the text that we just read, we're introduced to Moses' parents, right? Jacobed and Amram, uh, we find out in chapter 6. Those of you that are uh, potential future mothers or, uh, and fathers, this is a great name. I recommend Amram, Jacobed, great names, right? Uh, and later, we see that, uh, they, or in verse 1, we see that they belong to the tribe of Levi. And I want to take just a second, poetically, kind of in your own mind, to picture their situation for a second. You experience the joy of being with child, the joy that that brings. They're third, but quickly the realization washes over you that his fate in the times that you live in is to be placed in the Nile at birth and watch your baby float to probable death as you just stand on the shore weeping. You've seen your friends go through the process, pleading with Egyptian officials to not make them go through with it or being found that you're hiding and being dragged to the river to do the deed, the devastation, the hopelessness, the helplessness. No one seems to care about your pain, and there seems to be nothing that you can do. You're trapped. But in Jacobet and Amram's living room, right, they, they would share stories, being in the tribe of Levi, passed down from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob himself all the way through Levi. Stories of God giving Abraham a son at the age of 100, God saving Isaac at the last possible second and providing a ram instead. Jacob wrestling and refusing to let go. Joseph, despite being sold into slavery, saving their family. Imagine hearing these stories and it dawns on you. Imagine them realizing their only hope for their son was to place their faith in the God of their fathers. You see, we don't get much insight into to kind of their decision-making process here in Exodus 2. But if we flip to Hebrews 11, we get some, some recollection of what that was for them. In Hebrews 11, verse 23, it says this, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
this simple act of faith and desperation is weaved into God's deliverance plan. As Jacobed and Amram, just normal people, hatch their plan to hide Moses for three months and then make this small ark. The only other time we see ark mentioned in the Old Testament, this word, Hebrew word, is in Genesis with, with Noah, kind of a nod to God delivering them there. And they place their son in it and they send him toward the reeds where Pharaoh's daughter probably went to bathe the same time every day but they don't know what the result's gonna be. They didn't get a voice from the sky or an angel or a prophecy to instruct them. They just knew when they looked at their son that he was special, beautiful in some translations, and they acted in faith. They didn't know what the end result would be, but they refused to live in fear, as we see in Hebrews 11, but rather by faith. God takes this act of faith and begins his great deliverance plan for his people from Egypt. Far more in that moment, Jacobed and Amram had no idea what the future ramifications of that act of faith would be. They couldn't even hope or imagine that one day that little baby would lead his people out of Egypt. You see, the, the book of Exodus and the rest of the Bible is filled with these little acts of faith that God uses and honors and makes a part of his plan. Acts of faith from ordinary but desperate people whose greatest achievements are just realizing that they are incapable of saving themselves. People who later put blood on a doorpost in faith. People who later would run across the sea in faith. People who would only collect enough food for just that day in faith and so on and so forth. These acts of faith are what please God. It's what he's looking for from his people, not only in Exodus, but now too. In fact, we learn in Hebrews 11 that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see, and that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And thus today, we also find ourselves in desperation, not just from a sinful culture, who acts in opposition to God, but a sinful nature, and we ourselves are born with. So what do we do to please God? The same thing that Jacobed and Amram do. We act in faith and let God deliver us. For his church now, he accomplished deliverance once and for all on the cross. Not for the strong or the wise or the wealthy or for the popular, but for the desperate and the needy who would place their faith in Jesus for salvation and continue to live by daily acts of faith in the confusion. And so first we see that God's deliverance plan, one of its characteristics, is that he uses opposition itself. The second one we see is that he weaves in, he uses acts of faith. The third thing, the third characteristic that we observe is that God works with humbled people to accomplish his plan. And so let's jump back into Exodus 2. We're gonna read kind of that next part where Moses continues in his journey. And so we're gonna start in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? The, Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. 
When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And as a great matchmaker and father, Ruel says this. He says to his daughters, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may come and eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses their daughter, Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And so we see that as Moses gets older there in Exodus 2, that he has an understanding that he, in fact, is a Hebrew. right? That He starts to identify with them and see their burdens, their mistreatment. He sees himself in them. You see verse 11? He sees himself in them, and he calls them his people. As Moses watches a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian, he enacts his plan to deliver the Hebrew people, a plan that relies on himself. As he looks around and sees no one, he also doesn't recognize that God is watching as well. He's all about himself, his own might, that of which he had plenty. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen mentions Moses in his speech uh, as he's being stoned. and He kind of gives this resume of how great Moses was. And this is what he says in verse 22 of Acts 7. Moses was instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. You see, if anyone was going to lead the the people out of Egypt, it was going to be Moses. If anyone was going to lead an uprising, it was going to be this talented Moses. Moses uses his prowess to kill the Egyptian and free the Hebrew. He then attempts to use his eloquent words to unite the two quarreling Hebrews for a cause. We see Moses testing out his own abilities to be the Hebrew's leader, but without God. We even see the the guy mentioned, uh, who are you to judge us? Who are you to take the place of God? He fails miserably. In fact, in Leadership 101, uh, this is a pretty epic fail. He found out, mocked by the very people he was trying to lead, and wanted for capital punishment, all in just one little episode, right? I would say that's about as big of a failure as it gets as a leader. You see, God's deliverance plan, they, they never rely on the strength of human beings. God's deliverance plans intentionally use the humble and the weak in the eyes of the world. This ensures that God is the one who gets the glory, that there is no confusion for who is responsible for deliverance. This is always God's MO when it comes to deliverance. Whether it is Moses in our study here uh, in Exodus or it's Joshua marching around Jericho or whether it's Gideon with a few hundred men or it's David with a slingshot against Goliath or his perfect son on a cross, God uses the humble to accomplish his plans of deliverance. So God sends Moses to Midian, a nomadic people that descend from one of Abraham's other sons, Midian, makes sense, who had clearly passed down some tradition of faith because Ruel is called the priest of Midian. Moses goes from the palace to a pasture, from the highest place to the lowest place, from the throne to becoming a shepherd, serving water at a well to a woman, to become like his people and one day lead them out of bondage to a promised land. I hope that sounds familiar. It foreshadows exactly what Jesus does for us, a more perfect Moses. You see, like Moses, we have our ideas of what deliverance should look like. 
We often want God to deliver us from a place of prominence and strength and comfort and power to show off our prowess, looking good for all to see. But instead, God's deliverance plan for us will always direct us through Midian to a place of humility, dependence, and reliance on him. A death and daily denial of self in order that God, not ourselves, may receive the glory he is due and deserves as he shows his mighty power to save. And so one, we see that God uses his opposition in his deliverance plans. Number two, we see that he uses simple acts of faith from ordinary people. Three, we see that he uses humble people. And fourthly, we see that in God's deliverance plans, God is working his plan before we know we need it. I want to finish with these last three verses in chapter two. This is such a beautiful text. In verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Here we see one of the most encouraging, repetitive themes of scripture, that God hears the cries of his people, that he is not a God who sits in his power above the earth and ignores the pleas for help. He's not a father who leaves his children to deal with their own consequences of their sin. He's not a boss who makes people earn approval in order to lend an ear. He invites them to cry to him. God wants his people to cry out to him that tears and mourning are, are not opposed to the gospel. Sometimes uh, we pull a, a Tom Hanks in a league of their own and we say something like Christianity, uh, there's, no, we can't, there's no crying in Christianity. This couldn't be farther from the truth. That's false. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount that blessed rather are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That as his people in Exodus, they groan from their hopeless situation. They cry out for deliverance. Why? Because they've probably exhausted every way they can think of to end their suffering. They've probably tried pleading their case to Pharaoh. They've probably tried working hard so that the Egyptians approve of them. They've probably tried every strategy under the sun to, to end their pain, and nothing seems to work. So what do they do? They cry out for deliverance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has made a covenant to them. And as it says, God remembers. This is not saying that he forgot, but rather this word means that he acts in accordance with the promise that he had made to them. And this is what I love about this text. As they begin to cry out and groan, we see that God has already set into motion the plan. We just read about it in the first 22 verses in which he's already begun to mold and shape Moses for the task in extraordinary ways. He's already begun to rise up a deliverer before they even know to ask for one. He sets the plan into motion long before he even receives their cries. If you're a believer in this room, there was a day in which you realized that you were a slave, not to a foreign nation, but to sin itself. And you tried everything that you could think of to be your own deliverer. You tried success, good works, money, relationships, pleasure. Nothing seems to work. And you cried out to the only one who could deliver you in your hopeless situation. But come to find out 
that the deliverance plan had already been set in motion long before you even knew you needed to cry out. Romans 5, 8 tells us that even while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us to deliver us from sin. But maybe there are some in the room who have yet to put their faith in Christ Jesus. I want you to know today that just like God had a deliverance plan for the Hebrews in Exodus, he also has a deliverance plan for you today. That even though you have lived in opposition to God your whole life, he can use even your sin and opposition to be a part of his plan, to help you know that you need him, that you can't earn your way back to him. And nothing today, nothing other than a simple act of faith is going to please him. A simple plea from a humble place in which he gets all of the credit and you get none to the praise of his glory. As Pastor Brian comes and plays our invitation, if that's you today, man, today is the day. Today is an opportunity for you to to lower yourself, to humble yourself, and to walk forward. As we sing a song that expresses the same idea, the same sentiment, and today's an opportunity for you to to come forward and and cry a a simple prayer, not literally, but uh, together here in the front, to ask God to deliver you that through the cross, that through Jesus, his son, that he paid the death that you deserve and was raised to life so that you could have new life. If that's you today, you wanna make that commitment, man, I'd love to to meet you, to pray with you up front. If you're a believer here in the room today, as you read through the story of Exodus and you're seeing all of the characteristics of God's deliverance plan that carry through the scriptures, maybe today is a reminder of, of your dependence on him. Maybe it's a reminder that maybe you're in Midian right now. Maybe you're in a place where God is, is humbling you and showing your need for him. Man, would would this be an opportunity for you to just have a conversation with him, to be encouraged as we sing? Maybe maybe you sit and and seek him out and pray. But today, we we just wanna have a time of opportunity, uh, of prayer. I'm gonna pray for us, uh, and and then we'll sing our last song. If if you've uh, taken the opportunity to complete our membership process, this is also a a time where you can come forward and and we can just present you to the church. Uh, Man, we would love to encourage uh, and support you. So let me pray for us, and we'll have a time of invitation. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, in this place today, you would be poking hearts and minds and prodding, Lord, that your spirit would be working, that your word would not return void as you promised, that today we would see ourselves as the children of God, as the church, as we face a difficult culture, a different situation, Lord, that we would be encouraged that this is not a surprise to you, that in fact your plan is is working onward as we seek you and we live for you. Lord, be an encouragement as we walk out of this place as just an opportunity to, to love our neighbors and love our community and love our world. Would you help mold us and shape us through acts of faith to live out your purposes? Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.